Hey there, it's Debbie, and welcome to Playback Friday. Most Fridays, I re release one of my favorite conversations from the archive. So, unless you're a longtime listener of the show, there's a good chance you haven't heard this one yet. And even if you have, you just might get something completely different from it listening to it this time around. Because it's like parents focusing on if their family looks good, if their kids are doing well, if they think they're doing it right, they're above others. That is the wrong mindset to walk into a school with. Schools are communities. They're not an individual place for you, to, you the customer, to go get your needs met, you know, pay for your services and walk out. That's not going to help our overall society. And I do want to call people out on that. Welcome to the Tilt Parenting Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and today's guest is a powerful change maker, inspirer, and a dear friend of mine, Courtney Macavinta. Courtney is an author, life coach, and the founder of the Respect Institute, a global organization that builds the capacity of youth influencers to help vulnerable youth achieve positive academic and life outcomes. Their overall mission is to make respect the status quo. Courtney's been featured by CNN, National Public Radio, ABC, USA Today, Teen Vogue, and tapped as a resource by the White House and the Global Clinton Initiative. And actually, her bio goes on much longer. That's just the tip of the iceberg. I wanted to have Courtney on the show today to talk about her work through the Respect Institute, in which she is deeply immersed in trying to impact what's known as the school to prison pipeline, which according to the ACLU is a nationwide system of education and public safety policies that pushes students out of school and into the criminal justice system. And this system disproportionately targets youth of color and youth with disabilities. We had a very powerful and rich conversation, and I believe this is a social justice issue that we all need to be plugged into. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And one quick announcement before we get into the show, I recently launched a Patreon campaign for the Tilt Parenting Podcast. Patreon is a tool to allow patrons or fans to support the work of artists, musicians, and even podcasters like me. My goal is to be able to get help with some of the more time-consuming aspects of producing this weekly podcast, such as editing, which as we all know costs money. On Patreon, you can support what we're doing for as little as $2 a month, and we've created some fun perks for supporters. If you'd like to support what we're doing here at the podcast, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Thank you for considering, and thanks as always for being a part of our community. And now I'll get on with the show. Hey everyone, it's Debbie Reber here with the Tilt Parenting Podcast. And today I am so happy to be sharing with you one of my most favorite people on the planet, author, activist, change maker, speaker, coach, and so very much more, Courtney McAvinta. Welcome to the show, Courtney. Hi. There's so much to talk about today, and I also know that you and I could talk for hours about the many things we're passionate about, and we share a lot of passions. But I thought it would be really interesting to share your vision and message with the Tilt Parenting community, especially with your work surrounding the issue of respect. You and I have known each other for many years, certainly before your son was in the picture, and I was trying to think if it was before Asher was in the picture as well, but 
Would you mind for our listeners just taking a few minutes to tell us a little bit about yourself, like who you are as a mom and a bit about what you do beyond what listeners got from my introduction at the head of the show? Sure. Well, you know, I am mom to True, who's a seven-year-old boy. Um, and, you know, we're based here in California. And um, my work now, um, it started, you know, when we met, you know, I was a journalist and wrote a book called Respect for Girls that was all about, you know, this idea that self-respect really needed to be the engine that we lived our life by if we wanted to thrive and, you know, have the out- have positive outcomes. And that's since evolved, that work has evolved into a nonprofit called the Respect Institute, where we create research-based tools for primarily for the adults working with what we call vulnerable youth. And we can describe that a little bit later. You know, how can you nurture self-respect in youth? How can you create environments where respect is the status quo or the aspiration, right? And how do adults nurture self-respect in themselves? Because that is really where the rubber hits the road. So we, we have adults, you know, whether it's through e-training or live training, or we have an amazing toolkit, you know, we have adults take on this self-respect building process first, and then we, we have them bring it into schools, jails, uh, youth organizations, that sort of thing. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And I think when we first met, it was, because we were both very involved in the girl advocacy community. And I think your book, Respect, A Girl's Guide to Getting Respect and Dealing When Your Line is Crossed had just come out. And and for listeners, it's a great book. And I'll definitely include a link in the show notes, you can check it out. And I was thinking about that book and how even more relevant it is today than when it first came out. So can you tell us a little bit more about this idea of respect? I know that you're really clear that it's different from self-esteem, which seems to be kind of the buzzword of what so many people working with kids and teens are focused on. But what, how would you define respect? And why is it? Why is that differentiation so important to make? Well, for our, you know, word, word nerds that are listening, um, you know, we, we looked back and we we actually looked at the root meaning of the word respect and the root meaning is, you know, re like rewind, like you rewind a tape spect like spectacles, like, you know, eyeglasses. And so respect at its root actually means to look again. So it's really based in equity, compassion, you know, the old cliche, not judging a book by its cover. And then this concept of self-respect, what we did, we actually used to blend like a lot of folks, we blended kind of a few words and thought they all meant the same thing, which they don't. We we blended self-esteem, self-worth, self-confidence, and self-respect, right? A lot of us have done that, um, Mm -hmm. probably just in our mind and also in our youth advocacy work. And all these words are very different. And we think it does matter because you want to know what asset are you building and why are you building it? So self-esteem, simply put, is our opinion of ourself. And that opinion, the problem with the self-esteem construct is the opinion, the data and research shows is formed almost entirely by outside content and outside voice. So it's your opinion of yourself, but it's actually not coming from you. So that's Mm. problematic. Also, new research from UC Davis and others had shown that bullies have high self-esteem. 
many of them. So it's not like the bullies of yesteryear. Oh, you have low self-esteem. You know, you got kicked. You went out in the backyard and kicked the dog, right? Yes. Some bullies have low self-esteem, but really now it's used. Bullying is used to maintain social capital, to maintain high self-esteem. I think in living in the United States, we have a massive high profile example of that in our new president elect of what does high self-esteem look like? What does high self-esteem incarnate look like? Our philosophy at the Respect Institute is self-esteem is, an, is a dated concept and we actually don't need it. We don't need to focus on it. We all have it, but we don't need to focus on developing it, nurturing it, maintaining it because you don't really control it. It's coming from an outside opinion. So it's mm. not very empowering. Self-respect, on the other hand, our research shows came and was defined from the world of the philosophers, which I really love, where self-esteem is defined by psychology. And self-respect means knowing you're a unique contributor to the greater whole. Hmm. That's what it means. Very different thing than having a a, a certain or high opinion of yourself. Mm -hmm. So self-respect is more reliable. It's also innate. It is nurtured. You know, we, that's what we work on is our tools of how do you nurture that? But what's great about self-respect is I, I am someone who technically, even with, you know, all I've done and this and that. I technically probably on a day-to-day basis have kind of low self-esteem. You know, I think a lot of people who come from trauma and come from a background like mine or come from populations that weren't valued, you know, you might just have be walking around with low self-esteem, but it doesn't run my life at all, you know, because I'm operating from self-respect. I'm operating from, well, whatever, even if I have a fat butt, it doesn't matter because the point is I'm here. I'm a unique contributor to the greater whole. I'm here to do my work, my piece. And so all this self-esteemy stuff doesn't really matter then. And this is very important when we're looking at kids that are differently wired and their parents, because I think parents get low self-esteem around that. Like, you know, am I doing this right? Am I a good parent? You know, am I helping them? Did I cause this? You know, that's all self-esteem stuff. Mm -hmm. But if your kid gets to know, and I have a differently wired kid, as we were just discussing, you know, he just got diagnosed with with dyslexia, with a reading disability, you know, if your kid just knows, well, I'm a unique contributor to grow your whole, and I'm, I'm here on this journey to find that and to find what I'm going to contribute. It doesn't really matter if they think lowly of themselves here and there. That's going to happen. That, you know, you're going to have a low opinion here and there of yourself. But you don't have to run your life, behavior, aspirations, goals based on that. And that's really what, what we're here to, to say. That's so interesting. It's such a great distinction. And again, my past life before I started Tilt and kind of put all my energy into focusing on supporting parents with differently wired kids, I was doing a lot of work around teen girls and boosting their confidence. And it was all about self-esteem. And I remember when you and I first had this conversation, I had this big aha moment. And I think it's such a great distinction to make. And as you're describing self-respect too, it makes me think of this idea of self-discovery, self-knowledge, you know, this idea of empowering, I don't know that we can empower other people, but but kids or people becoming empowered to get to know who they are and how they fit into the bigger picture, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses and how they want to contribute. Yeah. And I think we can empower them because, you know, that comes from being conscious of these things and then making spaces for kids to explore this stuff, you know, whether it's during the school day, whether it's in your family, it's also, where are you putting an emphasis on? Right. So like in our family and we're not a perfect family, we have so many weaknesses and we're working on it all the time, but you know, it's like, um, welcome to the club. (laughs) Yes. Welcome to humanity. But you know, but we, but what we look at, right. We're not as a family trying to measure ourselves, for example, based on material wealth, 
that's a self-esteem thing. That's packaging. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're trying to measure our family on, are you trying to be a helpful person and not be, you know, even when you're in a bad mood, not be nasty to everybody and wreck everybody's day. Right. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're trying to look at, you know, what, so that's your unique contribution, you know, like, are you helping the family today? Are you helping others? Or are you being self-focused and worrying about your image and your material wealth, for example? So I think, you know, that it comes into the values of the family too. You know, we live in a country, you know, your, your home country where you were born, you know, um, that is very focused on packaging and material wealth and presentation. And I think that makes your work so important because that doesn't create a space for anything that's outside of that kind of glossy packaging, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're not the perfect student who's sitting in the desk, listening, compliant, you know, amiable, afraid of authority, if you're not doing that, you know, you're not, you're not going to fit in as a student. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. You're a problem. One of the focus areas of the Respect Institute, you know, as things have evolved, and this equally applies to girls and, and boys, is, you know, ending what's now called the school to prison pipeline. So this is a significant, well-documented problem that shows a causal relationship between when a student is sent to the office, like, a, you know, an office referral, or when a student is suspended or at worst expelled, they're three times more likely to enter the justice system, especially if they're a student of color. Before our talk, I, I dug into the, I know that there's a special education um, disproportionality here. And, you know, the Department of Education found, this is, this is so sad to me, that students that qualify for special ed are twice as likely to get suspended and 58% of all students placed in seclusions, so that could be like an in-school arrest or, a, you know, they're, they're special ed students. And 75% of those who are physically restrained at school, which shouldn't happen anyway, mm-hmm. qualify or are enrolled in special ed. And mm-hmm. I definitely see that as a juvenile justice commissioner here in Santa Clara County, which is another role I play. You know, our kids that are locked up, all of them, I'm not going to say all, I'm going to say 89% in the realm of that, have an, have an IEP, you know, our special ed kids. Wow. So they're really um, pushed out of school. Right. And that, that's where a big part of our work is done is how do you make respect the culture of the school and true respect? And how do you have adults that are nurturing self-respect and taking care of their burnout so that they're not inadvertently pushing kids into the pipeline because they're just sick of their stuff, you know, and they push them out of class and they don't realize you're pushing them into a different future the minute you send them down to the office. Mm. Uh, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to kids to send them to the office. I hate to say it. If that school is punitive and not restorative, you're tracking them. Remember, we used to get tracked into vocation or college. Now, one of the tracks is prison. So it's totally proven and it's a very dangerous cycle that's happening right now. And it's so common. I mean, being sent to the office, I mean, that is happening at such young ages. I'm curious. First of all, those statistics you shared are shocking to me. I mean, not surprising, but it's still like really makes you catch your breath. Oh my goodness. Like there are so many kids who are kind of stuck. And you said that the minute that they are sent to the office, you know, that they are three times more likely to eventually end up in the justice system. Does that include when they're quite young? I mean, did you find any information about at what age that starts to be a factor? 
So I want to make one distinction. I misspoke a little bit. So if you get suspended, actually suspended as a result of that, you're okay. three times more likely to enter the justice system. But we do have data on office referrals too. One of the most shocking things, he talked about younger kids, right? Mm-hmm. And, and obviously our, this data applies to public schools. Um, that's where we get this data. P- private schools don't have to share this kind of data. African-American preschool students, okay, two times more likely to be suspended. Who suspends a preschool student? Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Our, our data shows that it starts at a very young age and, and here, so that's kind of the bad news. The good news is there's also a causal relationship that's been found between teacher behavior that provides the solution. And the solution is, and, and when I heard this, so we have fellows at the respect Institute who study stuff who are already experts on stuff. And we have two that are experts on the school to prison pipeline right now. And I asked them, okay, really no kidding. How can we end the school to prison pipeline? Like this is, everyone's written about it. It's well-documented. What can we do? The first thing you can do is change school policy, right? So that you are more restorative, which means your, your focus is reducing office referrals, is reducing or eliminating suspensions. You know, in other words, it's keeping kids positively connected to school, which means positively connected to the adults there primarily. Mm-hmm. So part of it's policy. And also, what can your teacher even send a kid to the office for? You know, there's a big trend of sending kids to the office for what was called willful defiance. And of course, kids of color were targeted with this. So, you know, you're tapping a pencil. You're being willfully defiant. Bye. You're out. Right. Mm -hmm. So one of piece is policy. The other part is practice. And the practice is simple but not easy. But it is the empathy of the adults towards the students. And so that's where our next wave of our work is amplifying in that area, which is how can we use technology to rapidly increase empathy and maintain empathy for students? And so we're creating an app that'll have, for example, like virtual reality experiences embedded in it. So teachers can feel what it feels like to walk through the school to prison pipeline, you know, can hear from students, can just maintain that empathy because people don't lose empathy on purpose. Mm-hmm. It happens from burnout and stress. And by the way, many public schools are not safe, safe nurturing spaces for the teachers. Right. <laughs> so you know, this stuff starts to roll downhill. I mean, I've never met teachers and I work with teachers that work in jails. I've never met a teacher who doesn't like kids, hates kids, wants them to go to prison. Right. That's not, re- that's not what's going on here, mm-hmm. but there is what's going on here is documented implicit bias, unconscious bias. And the lack of empathy. So we have to work on nurturing that. You know, we have to be like empathy, physical trainers on ourselves when we're in these environments. And, you know, I'm sure parents can relate to this. I mean, the minute our empathy for our child goes, that's when we start to get very punitive, you know, very harsh. It's just, it's just human right. behavior. It's about control. You know, at a certain point, you just want to have control of a situation. So you, that's your default mode. There's so much more to maintaining a healthy gut microbiome than eating a balanced and healthy diet, travel, certain medications, and of course, something many of us have plenty of in our daily life, stress, are just some of the other factors that can totally throw off our systems. Enter Ritual. They created Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Their supplement includes two of the world's most clinically studied probiotic strains to support the relief of mild and occasional bloating, gas, and diarrhea. 
I like Symbiotic Plus because it delivers all this goodness in one single nested minty delayed released capsule designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract. And because the capsules don't require refrigeration, I just keep them on my desk so that I get that helpful visual cue every morning. Plus, they're easy to bring with me when I travel. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. We just celebrated our two-year anniversary of Gotcha Day when we adopted our sweet Haskell, my cat who acts like a dog, plays fetch, and who I'm pretty sure has sensory processing differences. Are you getting a new pet soon? That means you'll need to think about getting the necessities like food, toys, a bed. Something you may not be thinking about, though, is pet insurance. That's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. And it's fight or flight, right? So the same thing that's happening with the child. So we also study the intersection of trauma and all this. So low-income schools are high trauma. One form of trauma is toxic stress from, you know, poverty. And what happens is you just start to live from your, you know, your hippocampus, your, what I call it when I tell the kids about it, you know, your dinosaur brain Mm -hmm. and you get triggered into fight or flight all day long. And when you're in fight or flight all day long, what it looks like to adults is, you know, you have bad behavior and that is not what's going on. And you're not trying to be disrespectful to adults. And, you know, so one of the things we work on is helping adults also identify just the same way we unpack what is respect really is what is disrespect really, Mm. you know, is it disrespect or is it trauma? Is it someone's tired? Is it your relationship needs a tune up? You know, is it, you're not being empathetic and you're seeing everything as a disrespectful affront to you, the Mm -hmm. adult, Mm -hmm. or, you know, yes, maybe one out of 10 kids really is trying to be disrespectful and push your buttons. The last thing I'll just say is on that empathy piece. So we talked about, you know, the getting sent to the office can kind of start the school to prison pipeline cycle. What we work with schools on is, okay, then what happens when they go to the office? Because sometimes teachers need to be able to use that tool to continue learning for everybody else. And so that's where you can really make a difference as a school is what happens when you go to the office. You know, when we see schools that do wonderful things like the child gets to do a mindfulness activity, you know, gets to quiet down, gets to reflect on their behavior, gets to decide when they're ready to go back, you know, that it's just a, it's just a pause. Mm -hmm. It's not a disciplinary process that's happening. 
things like that, you know, where they get to connect with another adult in the office that they have a canary connection with. Like school secretaries can be an amazing part of the solution here. And we've met some great ones where they have a chat, you know, and they're encouraging them or just listening to them. And then they get themselves ready and they go back into class. Wow. This work you're doing is so important. I'm so happy and grateful that you're doing it. Yeah, I'm just kind of, I mean, as you talk, it feels so honestly, just overwhelming. And I'm sure you feel this way in the research that you do in the schools you interact with. I mean, I know so many teachers who do experience the burnout. I've read so many articles, you know, both in public and private schools. In fact, there was a big, quote unquote, scandal about a charter school system in New York City where kids are being suspended in preschool. And that's kind of mind blowing to me. And it seems like it is it can be just one teacher, right? In that child's Mm -hmm. life that that sets them down this path. And so there's so much work to be done. There is. And and a lot of it is just a big part of it is an individual school deciding we're not going to be punitive. You know, we're not going to do this. And then if you're not going to do it, you need to replace it with something else because you're taking a tool away from teachers. If you say you can't send them down to the office, you know, they're dealing with a lot in their classrooms. I mean, if you have, you know, 50% special ed in the class, then you have, you know, trauma, then you have, you know, all these things that are getting stockpiled at our public schools due to segregation and poverty and other things. Right. But the most empowering thing I hope that, you know, parents and teachers can take away from this is that an individual adult in their own individual choices about their behavior can stop the cycle. Mm. That's why we're fo- we focus individual frontline educators. You know, that's why we create trainings and apps and things just for them so that even if they're sitting inside of the most punitive, hardest school to teach in, they can decide what their approach is going to be, you know, for classroom management and for that self-care piece of like, I'm going to maintain my empathy just like I maintain my car, (laughs) you know, like, Mm -hmm. it's just, this is something that has to happen. It's a requirement of the job and that no, their principal doesn't need to make it a priority or a school-wide initiative. Individual frontline educators can choose to do that. So do you focus then, I mean, as you're talking, I'm also thinking, you know, Asher, for example, in preschool used to be sent to an office with a closed door and would sit in there by himself when he was three. Mm which, you know, we pulled him out of that school because we could. And, you know, at his, well, he's, he's been kicked out of every class he's ever (laughs) been in, but, but his most recent school, which was in second grade, a public school system, he used to get sent to the principal's office, but he ended up developing a nice relationship with her. And he would get to look at security cameras with her, you know, she kind of made it fun, which I'm still very grateful for her for doing that. But we're in a situation where we're able to pull him out, we're able to say this isn't going to work or advocate or try to train teachers ourselves in terms of this is what's going on. This is why that's happening. Here are some other tools. And so the kids who are really suffering here are the at risk kids, the kids who likely have learning and attention issues or other sort of neurological differences, but they may not have a parent that's plugged in. And so it's just getting missed. And or, you know, often the parent is plugged in, but the family, you know, because because race is a huge part of this, right? Mm -hmm. So African American boys and girls are three times more likely to enter the school to prison pipeline over every other population yet, you know, account for such a small number of the overall U.S. student population in comparison, right, right to right. whites. 
or like in my culture, you know, I'm Mexican American, you know, Latino families have different reasons that they get isolated at school, you know, in the sense of maybe they're, you know, they have a language barrier of, you know, communicating with the school or they have fear around authority, which can happen in our culture due to deportation and other issues. So one of the the main things is that, you know, what you're, what you're noticing and what you're calling out is who has choice and who doesn't. So that's an issue, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and so that's why it's really important for individual educators to take this on. I mean, and parents of, this is a huge thing that I'm grappling with even at my own school that my child's enrolled in is that as a culture, the school and the parents and everybody accepting responsibility for every student in the building, you know, they're Mm. all of our students and, you know, adopting a common value that education is the biggest social justice program, you know, program or movement in the United States, period. Yeah, yeah. And so this is a social justice issue. So it should not be okay with you if anyone's being disproportionately suspended from your school. And so we have to get out of our own story and our own life and look at what's happening to all the kids at the school and take responsibility for all of them. Because by the way, do you want them to go to a local community college and start to prosper? Or do you want them to join me over in the other side of the system where it's going to start to cost in California $80,000 a year to lock them up? It's you're Mm -hmm. paying either way. So Mm -hmm. if you want to even make it a money decision, you know, spend your money over on the education side. I mean, it's, it's, it's very expensive to lock kids up. That's such a good point. One of my goals in creating Tilt is to shift what I call the parenting paradigm around how difference is perceived and experienced both by kids who are differently wired in their families and by parents of typical kids who don't understand what's what's going on. And I just love the way that you called that out, how important it is for every parent to care about these issues even if their kids are neurologically typical, their kids aren't the ones getting sent to the office. It is, as you say, a social justice issue. And it's, I see so many parents kind of, you know, empathize like, oh, yeah, that's hard. But then they kind of go on with their, you know, that everyone's involved, self-involved with their own Yeah. And you know what world. I make up about that? That's another byproduct of this self-esteem mess. Because it's like, parents focusing on if their family looks good, if their kids are doing well, if they think they're doing it right, they're above others, that is the wrong mindset to walk into a school with. Schools mm-hmm. are communities. They're not an individual place for you to you the customer to go get your needs met, you know, pay for your services and walk out. That's not going to help our overall society and I do want to call people out on that. Mm-hmm. You know, you cannot be self-centered in a school community. You know, and I think it will help parents. I want parents to know if your child is being sent to the office, you feel disproportionately, or you did notice like you, why my kid got kicked out of every every class they're in. There's bias going on. That is not just your kid having a problem, not fitting in. There's bias going on. There's injustice going on. And that's just my belief and the data bears it out. So, you know, to have a little bit more, you know, oomph behind you, you know, that you're not wrong. And your child's not wrong. This system is set up to remove contaminants, you know, (laughs) and see children as contaminants. (laughs) And, you know, the ultimate removal is when then I get to go visit them in juvenile hall on Christmas Eve, as I do, and they're locked up. So, you know, I, I really encourage parents to know if you're feeling, you know, this is very serious, 
that your child is just seems to be disproportionately removed from the learning environment and put into isolation in some way or another, you're right. That is wrong. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not alone. I mean, this is happening. 7 million kids a year get pushed into just the school, the prison pipeline, you know, and that's not, you know, even looking at the, what is the, what is the number on just being sent into isolation at school, which is what you were talking about happened to Asher. Wow. Again, shocking statistics. So I want to ask some questions, like practical questions Mm -hmm. on what parents can do. One thing I'd like to know is, you know, just kind of picking up where you left off just now, if you're seeing that happen in your school, if you're seeing your child being kind of disproportionately sent out of the classroom, or you're noticing it's happening in other schools. I mean, when I, one of our schools, I had other parents reach out to me and say, I heard what's been happening to to Asher in the classroom, things I didn't even know about. Mm -hmm. And so I really appreciated that they were letting me know and we're not okay with it. So what can parents do if they notice that happening in their schools? Well, two things. One is, and, and I know this can seem a little boring, but it's really important, is to get to know the policies at your school. So for example, you know, really know when you, when you go into the school, ask them, what, what is the disciplinary process here? Do, are they using systems like PBIS, which is positive behavioral interventions and supports? That's not, that's not a cure-all, but you know, do they have a process for keeping kids in their learning seat, which is what I call it? You know, what is their rate of suspensions? You know, get to know your school. How punitive is this school? Also look at Title IX. So I think a lot of us learned, you know, especially those of us who focus on girls and women's issues, we learned about Title IX kind of in the context of, you know, women and girls being able to equally participate in sports, right, at public Mm -hmm, schools. It's so way beyond that. Title IX also applies to sexual harassment at school. And we haven't even really talked about the girl subculture that goes on here. So girls of color especially are being hugely disproportionately pushed out of schools. and, And a lot of it is around sexual harassment. So, for example, a girl being sent home from school for a dress code, quote unquote, violation, because a boy was harassing her. So there's like a rape culture thing going on in a lot of schools, um, you know, where Mm -hmm. like sent home for wearing short shorts. So she's getting disconnected from her education versus focusing on why is there sexual harassment happening at the school? And under Title IX, you have to. So that's one area where the law is on our side. You have to prevent sexual harassment you have to deal with the effects of it when it happens and you have to take steps to prevent it from happening in the future. So I think parents kind of knowing their rights around what are the policies of the school and is this school in alignment with federal policy to protect the rights of students, right? So I think that's number one. Number two, you know, becoming a bit of an activist at your school. This, this kind of issue, you know, speaks to your heart. Start, like we're starting at my kids' school, start an inclusion committee for the school look at the policies, look at your own data. I mean, school suspension data is public data at a public school. It's connected to funding too, and school climate funding um, in many districts. So, you know, look at our, do we have a problem with this and what can we as parents do? Then you can, you know, using us as a resource, definitely the Respect Institute has a free, like e-training on all that stuff we talked about, you know, redefining respect and, you know, you can bring in our toolkit into your school to, to start spreading respect as a practice, as a self-respect practice, as a mutual respect practice, and also using restorative practices, which are integrated into our work 
which help restore kids back into school and keep them connected to the community versus being punitive and pushing them out of school. So those are a couple practical things, but I would definitely say, you know, what I would love to see, especially in our current climate, I know your audience is international and I'm kind of U.S. centric in this talk today, but, you know, one of the things that's happened since the election is the Southern Poverty Law Center is documenting hate incidences across the country. They've skyrocketed. And the number one site for those incidences is school. So now we're Mm -hmm. dealing also with bigotry and hate increase at many schools, public and private. And so parents can really take a role in, you know, whether you're the PTA or an individual activist in saying, we're not going to do that at this school. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And when we, when that does happen, let's look at this. So let's say someone sprays painted a swastika on a school. Should we have zero tolerance and push that child out of school? Or should we educate, take this as an opportunity to educate everybody, restore that child to the community as a productive member of that community? Because anyone who gets pushed out, there's a cost to that. You know, so I think that's, you know, these are all things that parents Mm. can attempt. And then, of course, the individual work around how are we nurturing our own self-respect and our child's self-respect versus putting all our eggs in this self-esteem basket, which isn't getting us a good return on our investment. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky, wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. 
let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking It. I want to in a moment, go to that idea of fostering our own respect, self-respect as parents and how we can help our kids with that. But one thing as you were just talking made me think about the zero tolerance mm-hmm. policy that so many schools say they have. It's, I mean, based on what you just said, it makes sense that that's not the best policy. It's not at all. It's convenient, right? So there's, there's short games and there's long games when you're raising children or, or educating children. As a short game, I get it, right? A school feels like we're getting rid of the contaminants. It never works. Another quote unquote contaminant pops up. Also, zero tolerance is totally connected to the school to prison pipeline. So there's a lot of, you know, other amazing scholarly work that's gone on and reports published about that zero tolerance was a total drastic overkill. And we need to remove those policies because they're, they're disconnecting kids from education. So then what do you put in its place is a longer game. You know, what you're putting in its place, one of the things we didn't talk about that, you know, this helps parents and teachers and everybody is nurturing what's called protective factors. And protective factors are things that help children overcome trauma, you know, overcome adversity, stay connected to school, not just school in general, but Mm -hmm. protective factors are totally based on adult-child relationships so that the adult is showing interest, respect in the child, that there's trust there, that the adult is safe. You know, it sounds really simple, but it's very important work. So zero tolerance unravels all of that Mm -hmm. because it makes the child not in relationship with the adults at school. Everything comes from relationship when when we want to solve these problems and help children stay connected to education. Mm-hmm. Um, it's totally rooted in the adult-child relationship, which should then be backed up by policy. Like we're not going to be a punitive school; we are going to prevent and heal sexual harassment, those kinds of things. That's great. So, all right, I would love to know at the beginning of the conversation you talked about a lot of your work being about helping adults, caregivers, parents, and teachers work on their own self-respect and develop that, so they can kind of trickle down. So. For parents who are listening, what do they want to be doing? Or maybe what does self-respect look like in their children? And especially if you can speak to differently wired children, why is it particularly important for them? Mm. Well, the first part, I mean, I think parents, you know, we have a set of universal practices that are embedded and amplified in all of our tools and work called the Respect Basics. And they're research-based and they're a set of eight practices such as, you know, getting help setting boundaries, being compassionate that help you nurture your self-respect on a daily basis. And they're, they're practices. So you might focus on one, one day and one, the next, you know, you're not, they're not linear. And so really working on, you know, you can look at them on our website. We have a handbook you can download for free. That's kind of like a little mini journal. We do have an amazing new journal that you can get through the website too, you know, to work on nurturing that in yourself and and, and your understanding of that. And then everything, all the exercises in there are the same things you can do with your kids. The second piece of around differently wired, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot um, when it comes to my son, True, is again... If you are already noticing you're different, right, in the school environment or in the community because you have a different way of learning or you have, you know, a different style, all of that stuff, you have different, you know, variant neurology, whatever's going on, introduce these concepts to them, you know, talk about 
the difference between self-esteem and self-respect and that, you know, we're going to focus as a family on self-respect because we know also that people with self-respect are more mutually respectful to others. And that makes good citizens, right? So kind of bringing in that concept. And also what I love about what I make up about differently wired kids, at least the ones I meet and know, is that if you have ever been part of a marginalized group, you could potentially have a higher capacity for some natural empathy, right? Because you're like, hey, I know what it's like to be left out or treated differently. And I don't want that to happen to other people. So I would say definitely, you know, celebrating empathetic acts when you see your children doing that, um, you know, celebrating when you see them being self-respectful, being a unique contributor to the greater whole, you know, thanking them for doing their chores, which helps the family versus mm -hmm. you're so great. You're the best. That's self-esteem stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. I mean, I I think my kid is the best, and I you know I love him the most. I mean, come on, he's my kid. He's very cute. Yeah, but you know, but I and he already has like a kind of crazy amount of self esteem that scares me a little bit. You know, I don't want him to be walking around just thinking he's the best with no effort. You know, so you know, I think also languaging. You know, what are we praising them for? What are we celebrating them for? Um, and also looking at, which you had a marvelous podcast about this, the intersection of everything I'm talking about and positive discipline. Mm -hmm. So, you know, positive discipline is a part of any restorative framework. So bring positive discipline, advocate for positive discipline at your school. That is a huge part of this equation of creating yep. a respectful school that honors everybody and helps everybody stay connected to their learning. And, you know, practice using it in your home. It's super hard. I get it. I, I am like a D minus student at it right now myself, but I think having that aspiration that that is going to be the framework you're using and that will make you feel better as a parent. Positive discipline, right? Is about connecting before you. Mm -hmm. And so your sense of your mastery as a parent, you know, Hey, I'm doing okay here is going to be better if you're using these kinds of tools, because you're, you know, you're going in the right direction, you're staying connected to your kid, you're not blowing up, you're not being punitive and doing, you know, like dumb things like I do sometimes, you know, like, I'm going to take away your iPad for a week, which isn't accomplishing anything in the equation, right? It's, it's an immediate, I'm trying to get an immediate quick fix, but it doesn't. Mm -hmm. So I think those are some things you can do. And, and again, on our website, there's a section called tools. And we have a lot of stuff like this that you can download and use. Thank you. Yeah, I would love if you could tell us where people can reach you, you know, not only to get resources from the Respect Institute, but how can parents support the work that you're doing? Yeah, so a big thing you can do, you know, is go to the respectinstitute.org, which I'm sure you'll connect to this episode. Go to our tools and training um, part in our menu and you can download things, you know, bring us into your schools if you need help with any of the things I just described, you know, we provide uh, consulting for schools, training events, you know, we, we figure out what works. And our tools are um, being used internationally. So they're not just US centric. So I think that's kind of the first way to kind of connect in. Perfect. Yes. And for listeners, I will include links to the Respect Institute to definitely check it out. There are a lot of tools on the site, as Courtney said, and I'll also include a link to Courtney's book, which, as I said, is just as relevant today, if not more so than it was when it came out. Courtney, I just need to thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on the show and having 
what I think is such an important conversation. It's it's a different kind of an episode for us because it's not necessarily solving for, you know, this one specific problem. But I'm trying to bring on guests to have these, what I think are very rich and meaningful conversations about all the issues that we need to be exploring if we're going to really shift things and shake things up. So I'm just grateful for you as a person in the world and for the work that you're doing. And I'm inspired as always when I get to spend time with you. So thank you for being uh, on the show today. Thank you. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, including links to the Respect Institute, their free e-course on defining respect, Courtney's book, and all the other resources we talked about, visit tiltparenting.com slash session 43. If you like what you heard on today's episode and you haven't already done so, please consider subscribing to our podcast on iTunes or leaving a review. Both of these things help our podcast get more visibility. And lastly, if you're not already signed up for our newsletter, I'd love for you to join our online Tilt Parenting community. I send out short weekly updates with links to new content on the Tilt site, articles, and resources just for you. Thanks again for listening. For more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com. Real truth alert, pregnancy, birth, and having a baby isn't all sunshine and rainbows. I wish it were, but the reality is that many people struggle and suffer through this time without the right help or even knowing what they're dealing with. I'm perinatal psychologist, Dr. Katayun Kayani, also known as Dr. Kat. My podcast, Mom and Mind, aims to shine a light on the difficult reality that so many hopeful and new parents experience and raise the volume on how we can better support mental health, which is a big part of our overall health. Episodes include personal stories from people who have healed through things like pregnancy and postpartum anxiety, depression, PTSD, and so much more. I also talk with specialists and experts who explain and educate on these conditions. All of this to support parents to know that they are not alone, that healing is possible, and there are resources that can help you today. Listen into Mom and Mind and walk with me through the world of perinatal mental health.